I would like to welcome you again to Amazing Prophecies. We're excited at the journey we're beginning tonight, and I know that as we are beginning this journey, that God has something very special in store for each one of us uh, as we go through His Word. My name is Kyle Allen, and I work for a ministry called Adventist World Radio, which is a Christian radio broadcast ministry that broadcasts the gospel in over a hundred languages on over a thousand stations worldwide. And so we're blessed, blessed to be a part of God's work around the world. And right here in Houston, God is doing something very, very special. I'll be sharing with you some different highlights and stories from our work around the world as we go through the next two weeks. But first, I want to just explain how this seminar works as we begin tonight. We're going to dig deep into Bible prophecy. How many of you have ever dug deep into Bible prophecy before, just by a show of hands? Okay. All right. I see some of your hands. Great. Well, we are going to dig deep, and our subject matter is the Bible. In fact, the Bible is our only textbook. And so I would encourage you, if you've got a Bible, bring it with you. Use your phone. That's going to be our textbook for our series here the next two weeks. Now, it doesn't mean that other books aren't valuable or important, but I've noticed that there's a lot of different theories about Daniel and Revelation out there. There's a lot of different ideas and kind of creates confusion. So let's base our seminar on the Bible. What do you say? That's going to be our textbook. And we're going to look, yes, we're going to look at some historical examples, what people have said historically about the Bible. But for the most part, we're just going to stick with the text itself and allow the Bible to become its own interpreter. All right? That's how we're going to go through this. So the key, my friends, is to read it. And the key is actually to read the whole book. I know that sounds like a big task, but I promise you it's going to be worth the effort. But what you need are the right tools, the right frame of reference. And if you understand how the book of Revelation was written and how it was meant to be read, if you understand the original context of the prophetic books of the Bible, you're going to find that it makes really good sense. That's going to take a little bit of time and effort because the Bible is a big book. Does anybody know how many different authors wrote the Bible? Okay, there's 66 books, 44 different authors over 1,500 years. Can you believe that? The Bible is a very big and special book, a book that is no common book for sure. So here's what we're going to do. Every night, we're going to cover the, one of the major themes of Bible prophecy. I'm going to give you some of the tools that you're going to need to help understand Bible prophecy for yourself. And what I want, by the time we're finished, I want for you to be able to read the prophetic books of the Bible, Daniel and Revelation and understand them just as you do the rest. How many of you have ever heard someone say, I don't understand Revelation? Have you heard that? It can be a little intimidating when you read about the beasts and the symbols and those kinds of things, but as we go through the seminar, you're going to find that God has given these symbols and the way to interpret them in the Bible itself. And so we're going to do that as we go through the next couple of weeks. I want you to understand the Bible. That's the goal of this seminar. So, it's, I'd like to liken it, it's kind of like building a house, right? When you build a house, you first you pour a foundation. 
Then the next day you put up the studs and then you sheet the walls, right? Now I'm not a, I'm not a, is anybody, do we have any builders here? I'm just curious. Anybody here? Okay. I'm not a builder, but I know that each step is important. And as you go through the steps, that's how you build a house. And so in a similar way, we're going to step-by-step study Bible prophecy. And when we get to the end, we're going to look at a very beautiful picture of God's truth in His Word. Tonight's topic, let's get right into it. Revelation's biggest surprise, a new world order. I'd like to ask us to pray before we begin our topic tonight. Father in heaven, I thank you for bringing everyone here to this place tonight. I thank you for your holy word, which gives us insight and guidance, Father, for our lives and for the future. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us tonight as we study your word. We pray that you would give us understanding and clarity. Lord, as we look around at the world that we live in, we see confusion and we see heartache and pain. But we know that your word provides hope and the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation provide hope for the future. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and open our minds to what you would have us to learn from your holy word. And I thank you, Lord, for how you're going to answer this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Tonight, I want to start with one of the biggest questions in the history of the universe. There's really no point in studying anything from the Bible unless we can answer this question. Is there really a God? Is there really meaning or direction to our existence on this earth? Or are we just some accident at the on this tiny blue marble in the corner of a galaxy in a vast, limitless space. Is there meaning to life? Is there something beyond what we see here and now? The pain and suffering of this world often causes people to question, does God really exist? Does He really care? We have gone through a global pandemic that has shaken many of us to our core. As we look around us, we see a world that is struggling, a world that is suffering. It leads many to ask the question, what does this all mean? Is there a God who is really in control of this world? Some of you, like me, have lost loved ones to this pandemic. You've been there as you couldn't go visit them. And you had to say goodbye on FaceTime. Just a few weeks ago, someone else I knew passed away from this terrible disease. And, it, and, and this was a very faithful Christian woman, and it leads some people to, to ask the question, where is God in all of this suffering? Is there a God who really cares about me? Is there a God who is really out there somewhere? when they're hooked up to the ventilator and there's no hope. Is there hope, ultimately, in a future life? Is there something beyond this world? People ask the question, 
What is the relevance of life? Is there a God? People look, you know, we think about the political unrest that we see around us, around the world. This picture in Afghanistan. We know the stories that came out of that terrible situation. The world is full of heartache and pain. Is there a God? Where is He when people suffer? When innocent lives are taken. This is a picture of one of the 13 servicemen and women. This young woman lost her life on the front lines in Afghanistan. Innocent lives lost a senseless war. What does it all mean? Where is God? On top of all the political strife, natural disasters, here's a picture. Hurricane Ida which pummeled the East Coast. Flooding that took the lives of many people. Even here in Houston, you have experienced flooding on many occasions. Difficult, difficult situations. Natural disasters, fires in California. This picture here from Paradise in 2018 where over 70 people lost their lives and almost every structure in that town was burned in a matter of hours. Some people that I know were there. In Lake Tahoe, almost an entire town burned down again. Not only fires, but earthquakes. You've seen this picture from Haiti. A country ravaged by pain and suffering. Once again, an earthquake comes and takes the lives of many innocent people. And it leads people to ask the question, where is God? Is there a meaning to our existence? Does life actually mean something? Or is it just random chance? You know, I'm going to take you to a very unusual place to find an answer to this question. We're going to go now and look at two men on the screen. Do you recognize either of these two men? Does anybody recognize them? Now, most of you will probably recognize the one on the right, who is... All right, you guys are A-plus, students of history. All right, Napoleon Bonaparte. The one on the left, does anybody know who he is? Not, not as well known. He's actually the Duke of Wellington. All right? These two men were mortal enemies, and they met at a particular battle that was very famous. Students of history, do you know what that battle was? Battle of Waterloo, right? In June of 1815. Now you probably remember that from school, but what most of you don't probably know is that these two men actually had a lot in common. Check this out. Both of them were born in 1769. Okay, we'll go to the next slide, guys. Both of them born in 1769. Both of them born on an island, actually, interestingly. Both of them lost their fathers in early childhood. Both of them had three sisters and four brothers. All right, there we go. There's the slide. And both of them attended military school in France at the same time. They were lieutenant colonels within a day of each other. Both of them excelled at mathematics. And of course, both of them were great commanders over large armies. They were evenly matched. And yet the Duke of Wellington won and Napoleon lost. And the question is, why? Well, historians have given us some reasonable answers. Some say it was the geography of the battlefield that favored the Duke of Wellington. 
Others say Napoleon lost because the Prussian army went many miles out of its way to join up with the Duke of Wellington. Others say that Napoleon was simply getting very tired. He had suffered major defeats. His excursion into Russia in 1812 was a disaster. And so Napoleon wasn't the man he used to be. But are those really the reasons why Napoleon lost? What do you think? Why does anything happen in history the way it does? Is it all just coincidence? Human chance? Well, tonight, we're going to go to a very unusual place to find the answer. We're going to go to an ancient king's bedroom. A man who lived roughly 600 years before Jesus Christ. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar the man who built the Neo-Babylonian Empire. This was the man who ruled the ancient Middle East 2,600 years ago. And one night, something happened in Nebuchadnezzar's bedroom that would determine world history for the next 2,600 years. It was a dream, a nightmare, really. And you can imagine Nebuchadnezzar wakes up in the middle of the night. He's, his heart is pounding, and his, he's, he's sweating, and he starts to look around. He's saying, what just happened? What, did I, what, what does that dream mean? The Bible records this story in the book of Daniel. Let's begin in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1. You can see it there on the screen. Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. This man who was scared of nothing, is now scared of a dream. <laughs> Imagine, this is a guy, he's a king of the most powerful empire on earth. He's not afraid of death. He's not afraid of risk. But he's just had a dream that tells him he's going to lose everything, and is now he is scared out of his socks. He probably didn't have socks, I don't know. <laughs> but it is one of those dreams that bothers him long after he wakes up. Have you ever had a dream like that? Have you ever had a dream that you just, you're not sure what it means? And it bothers him enough that in the middle of the night, he calls for his wisest counselors. Now, these were wise men. Some people called them Chaldeans or Magi. This is where we get the word magician, if you've ever heard of that before. These were the philosophers, the scientists, the astronomers, the mathematicians, the priests of the Babylonian Empire. And they were also the religious authorities of the day. They claim to have a special connection with the gods. And so that's who Nebuchadnezzar wants. And, you know, you can understand. He needs interpretation. The Bible continues the story in Daniel chapter 2, verses 2 and 4. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will give the interpretation. The Chaldeans breathed a sigh of relief. This was going to be easy. Your majesty, this is what we do. We know how to handle this. We'll just go get our dream interpretation books, and we will interpret what you dreamed. But the king realizes that these guys, he gets the feeling that these guys 
aren't being so honest. Maybe they've been lying to him just to stay on the payroll. It's not a good thing when you're trying to run an empire. You need to, you can't afford to have bad intelligence, right? And he just had a dream that told him he was going to lose his empire. He needed to know what it meant. So he puts them to the test. The Bible continues in Daniel 2, verses 5 and 6. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. Have you ever complained your job isn't challenging enough? <laughs> These guys had a big problem. They panic. They get in a huddle. What are we going to do? They came back to the king and tried to reason with him. They answered him. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation." You can imagine the Chaldeans, these, these, these astronomers, these astrologers, they're saying, come on, Nebuchadnezzar, you know how this is supposed to work. Go back and read the employee handbook. You tell us the dream, and we provide the interpretation. There's not a chance. You guys are stalling. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar saying, I want answers now. Now pay attention to what's happening here. My friends, you know if you live a lie, it's only a matter of time until you get discovered. Isn't that right? Until someone pushes you out into the bright sunlight where everybody can see what you really are. Eventually, everybody's life is put to the test. And for these guys, the lie is over. They've been exposed. Now what are they going to do? They can't get inside the king's head and read his dreams. That's just not possible. The Bible says that only God can read the hearts of men. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 39 says, For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. So what are these guys going to do? The Bible says they give up. And for the first time in their lives, they actually tell the truth. Daniel 2, verse 11. It is a difficult thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Finally, they tell the truth. The king is madder than a hornet. He blows his top. And he, he can't stand being lied to. These men, he's entrusted with his life. And the Bible says in verse 12, for this reason the king was angry and very furious and gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. That's it. I've had it. Go round them all up and put them to death. So the guards go out into the kingdom of Babylon. They round up all the wise men for an early retirement party. 
And while they're out collecting the wise men, they knock on the door of a young man. Does anybody know who his name was? Daniel. Now, Daniel is not a Babylonian. He's a Hebrew. And if you've studied the Bible, you know he was taken captive during Nebuchadnezzar's siege on Jerusalem. Because he was Jewish royalty, they put him in a special program. It was kind of like a retraining program. They immersed him in Babylonian culture. They gave him a new Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. They gave him a Babylonian education. They hoped they would make him into a Babylonian. But Daniel is faithful to the one true God. And Daniel is bright and he's gifted. And as he is faithful to God, he quickly rises to the top, even there in secular Babylon. You can imagine that night. One of the guards comes, knocks on Daniel's door. Come on, Daniel, we've got to go. Where? Well, the king's had this dream. Nobody can tell him what it means, so he's rounding everybody up and, well, I'm afraid it's not good news. Take me to the king, Daniel says. So Daniel went in and asked. Verse 16 of chapter 2. He went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the what? The interpretation. What did Daniel ask for? More time. Now that was something the king wasn't willing to give the other astrologers, the magicians, right? But for some reason, the king trusts Daniel. Because Daniel has what? He has character. The king knows he can trust him. By the way, character is the most valuable commodity you can have. Daniel was the kind of man who never gave you cause to doubt. He was the kind of man you knew you could trust. So Nebuchadnezzar gives him what the other guys couldn't get. Friends, by the way, a good character matters, yes? Yes or no? What do you think? A good character matters? Absolutely. Cheating and lying are shortcuts that always end in disaster. But a good character lasts a lifetime and will always serve you well. So Daniel goes and he makes the best of his time. Now he doesn't go collect, you know, consult the star charts or cut open a, a goat and read its entrails. That's what some of these guys used to do. Isn't that gross? He doesn't go to a seance, but he does something that our ancestors used to do. He gathers with his friends. And what does he do, friends? He prays. He prays. He prays all night. He's seeking God for an answer. And as he prays, he finally gets an answer. The next day, they take him back to the king. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 2, verses 27 and 28, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Now there's the answer to our question. Is there such thing as a God? Daniel says yes. There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets and he's about to prove it. Now I want you to follow this very carefully because if you've never heard God speak, that might just happen for you tonight in ways you didn't expect. Look at this verse with me, please. 
and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be, what does it say, friends? In the latter days. Now when, friends, when does, this, when does it say? In the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. You, O king, were watching, and behold a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. And its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold. Its chest and arms of silver. Its belly and thighs of bronze. Its legs of iron. Its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So, friends, what does the king see? What does he see, everybody? A statue, right? A massive statue. The head was made of? What was it made of? All right. The chest and arms were made of? (laughs) Do you all agree? Silver, right? The belly and thighs were made of? Bronze or brass, right? And the legs? Iron. And the feet? Iron mixed with clay. Now that's an incredible dream, but there's still more. Daniel continues in verse 34. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. You can imagine, as Daniel is telling the the king his dream, exactly as he had seen it. The throne room is quiet, so quiet, you could probably hear a pin drop. Everybody holds their breath. Slowly, Nebuchadnezzar leans forward. Daniel, that's exactly what I dreamed. What does it all mean, Daniel? Now, here's where it gets interesting, friends. Daniel is about to explain the dream, and you and I are going to learn an important principle. If we want to understand the Bible, we need to let the Bible interpret itself. Amen? You have to read the whole thing. You don't want to guess. You don't want to speculate. You've got to let the Bible explain itself. It always does. God has no trouble speaking for himself, friends. Far too often, people will read a few verses... And start jumping to conclusions. You get, you get too much exercise jumping to conclusions, all right? Gold, that must point to Fort Knox. The national debt, silver. That must point to Montana and Colorado and the silver mines. No, friends, no, no, no. That's not how you handle Bible prophecy. You read the whole thing. You let the Bible speak for itself. Daniel tells us exactly what it means. So let's... Go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 37. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Nebuchadnezzar, the one who gave you that dream is the one who gave you this kingdom. Do you think your military prowess makes you successful? Think again. None of this would be here if God didn't allow it. 
He continues, wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, He has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Do you see it? There's no guesswork. The Bible tells us clearly who the head of gold is in this statue that was in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. He ruled the whole known world from 605 B.C. to 539 B.C. It was one of the most unbelievable empires in history. In fact, it really was the golden empire. There on the screen you see a picture of the Ishtar Gate. Have many of you heard of the Ishtar Gate? Now you can actually go to a museum in Berlin. I've been there many years ago. And you can actually see some of the blue tiles of the Ishtar Gate that have been reconstructed there in the museum in Berlin. The same gate that was there in Babylon. It was a wealthy, wealthy empire. In fact, we still use the word Babylon to symbolize over-the-top decadence. It was wealthy and very influential. In fact, so influential, some of us still think like Babylonians to this day. Have you ever heard of a horoscope? Astrology? That all came from the Babylonians. They also gave us base 60 mathematics. And you say, well, I don't know what base 60 mathematics is. You and I use the decimal system, right? We learn to count to 10, and then we add a digit to that number. But the Babylonians counted to 60. And you say, well, what does that have to... Friends, how many seconds are in a minute? 60. 60 minutes in an hour. A circle has how many degrees? 360. It's all left over from Babylon. It was one of the greatest empires in world history, and there's a reason we still remember it today. But here's a question. Did Babylon last forever? Does Babylon still rule the world tonight? No, it doesn't. No. And that's the part of the dream that bothers Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 39 continues. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. Nebuchadnezzar, there will be another kingdom after yours. It won't be as great as yours, but it will replace you. And of course, Daniel was right. Does anybody know who conquered Babylon? Students of history, anybody know? All right, I see some hands. The Persians or the Medes and the Persians. Now in 539 B.C., the Persians under a great general by the name of Cyrus captured the city of Babylon in one of the most breathtaking feats in military history. The chest of silver defeated the head of gold. Now how did that happen, friends? Babylon was a well-fortified city, right? It had, it had walls that were reportedly you could run two chariots along the walls. They were so thick. There was one flaw in the defenses of Babylon. The Euphrates River ran underneath the wall. And Cyrus realized that if he diverted that river, his army could march right through the riverbed and into the city. And so that's exactly what he did. He went upstream and diverted the river into an ancient dry lake, and before you knew it, there was a virtual highway right under the city wall, and the chest of silver defeated the head of gold. So here's the question, friends. Do the Medes and the Persians still rule the world tonight? Yes or no? No, right? Of course they don't. 
prophecy continues. Verse 39, then another kingdom, another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Nebuchadnezzar, there will be a third kingdom that rises to power. Now you tell me, who was the kingdom that defeated the Persians at the Battle of Arbella in 331 B.C.? Does anybody know? What was that? Boy, you guys are like A-plus students. You must have had good history teachers somewhere along the way. That's right. It was Alexander the Great. The Greeks, the Macedonians, under this very capable general. Now, Alexander managed to conquer the whole world, the known world, 2 million square miles, 20 million subjects in just four years. Can you believe that? All before his 32nd birthday. Now, I'm 38, all right? I can't imagine. I don't understand how Alexander conquered the whole world by the time he was 32. Isn't that amazing? With incredible speed, the world had never seen a conqueror like Alexander. He pushed his way all the way to the coast of India, and when he saw the ocean, history tells us, the story tells us, that he began to cry because there was no more world to conquer. <laughs> because his men were tired, he thought he had come to the end of the road, he turned back, and one night, as he camped by the ruins of the ancient city of Babylon, the same city where Nebuchadnezzar had had that dream, Alexander died in his sleep. Some people think he actually drank himself to death. He conquered the whole world, but he wasn't able to conquer himself. The Bible was absolutely right. There was a third empire. It was the Greeks. But friends, does Alexander the Great still rule the world tonight? Absolutely not, right? No, of course not. Now, Greek philosophy is still around with us, but the Greek army is no longer in existence. There was another, arm, there was another empire that came after the Greeks. Verse 40 continues. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Okay, history buffs, you guys that were getting your A's in history class, I know you're going to know the answer to this. Who defeated the Greeks at the Battle of Pydna in 168 B.C.? All right, good job, guys. It was the Romans. That's exactly right. The empire that ruled the world until the day that Jesus was born. The Romans had a fierce, disciplined army that changed the face of the world forever. They were the empire that crucified Christ, the empire that created a lot of our modern-day legal and political structures. If you go to Washington, D.C., which is where I'm from, you see many of our government buildings are in Romanesque architecture, right? It's interesting. Some people say we still think like Greeks and act like Romans today. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever read a massive set of books by Edward Gibbon, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Has anybody ever seen that set of books? All right. I wouldn't expect It's a big set of books, possibly the most definitive work on the subject, but here is what Edward Gibbon said about the rise of the Romans. It's very interesting. Look at what he said. We'll get it up on the screen there for you. The images of gold, silver, or brass that might serve to represent the nations and their kings were successively broken by the iron monarchy 
of Rome. Now, Edward Gibbons wasn't exactly a believer, but it almost looks like he read the Bible. <laughs> right? Very, very interesting. Okay. So far, we have the head of gold, right? That represented Babylon. We have the chest and arms of silver, the Medes and the Persians. We have the belly and thighs of you guys with me or are you asleep yet? Bronze, right? That re or brass that represented the Greeks. And the legs of iron that represented Rome. Was that the end of the dream? There's more. We still have to look at the feet. Verse 41. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be what? Divided. Now, is that true? Did the Roman Empire divide? Absolutely. At one point, it split into east and west. And the east lasted far longer than the west. But then it split even further. And now we're going to talk about the toes. Okay? The Bible continues. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. Clay being fragile, right? Iron being strong. Now the dream shifts to the Western Roman Empire. In the coming nights, you're going to see why our focus is on the West. But notice how it focuses on the toes. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you have counted your toes? <laughs> how many toes do you have, friends? You have ten, right? And when the... I just broke... actually. This is the first day I'm going without my boot. I broke my big toe a few weeks ago. And um, I took a risk. I didn't want to wear it up tonight. But uh, toes are very important. I'm very thankful for, for my toes. They help me walk. But I know we have ten toes, right? When the Western Empire collapses in 476 A.D., historians usually point to ten fragments Ten families of barbarian tribes, just like ten toes. So let's look at this map very quickly here. I know we're getting a lot of history, and tonight we'll go to our next slide, guys. Okay? You've got the Anglo-Saxons, who eventually become the? The British, right? You've got the Franks, who become the? The French, right? In fact, the French money used to be called the French franc. That was before the euro. <laughs> You've got the Visigoths, who eventually become the, does anybody know? The Spanish. And the Suevi, who became the Portuguese. You've got the Burgundies in the region that eventually becomes Switzerland. The Alemanni, anybody know? Germany, right? You've got the Lombards, who eventually move south and become the, anybody know? The Italians. And then you've got the Ostrogoths, the Heruli, and the Vandals, three tribes that no longer exist. But now, friends, the dream gets really good. What you're about to read has determined the course of history ever since Nebuchadnezzar dreamed it. It has determined who wins wars and who sits on the throne. And it proves, my friends, beyond any shadow of a doubt that something or somebody is guiding history. It is not all just random chance. God is about to show up. Look at this verse, friends. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle 
with the seed of men. But they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. Now what is Daniel saying? He predicts that the Western Roman Empire would break into pieces. And then he says that people would try to put those pieces back together. He says that people would try to restore the Western Roman Empire. But he also says they will never succeed. And if you go back and read your European history, you'll see that Daniel was absolutely 100% right. Now, does anybody know who this... Okay, it says it right there on the screen. <laughs> I gave you a clue. Queen who? Victoria, right? Now, she sat on the throne of England, the Victorian age. Do you know she was called the grandmother of Europe? Why was she called that, friends? Does anybody know? It's because for generations, the royal families of Europe tried to unite nations together through marriage. They married their kids to other royal families, hoping to bring lasting peace to a part of the world that has always been ripped apart by war. Even today, the royal family in England, you'll find connections with the other royal families of Europe because that's how they've done things for many years. There was so much intermarriage that by the time Victoria was the Queen of England, she was literally related to every other head of state in Europe. They were quite literally mingling the seed of men. But friends, question, did that work to prevent war in Europe? In fact, the 20th century, as you know, a century after Queen Victoria was the bloodiest century, than all, bloodier than all the previous centuries combined. Let's go back and take a quick, and we're talking quick, trip through European history as we look to see, is the prophecy of Daniel really true? Now, there are a lot of names that we could mention if we look at European history. I was going to ask you if you know who this is. Do you know who this is? <laughs> All right, good. You guys are smart. This is Charlemagne. He was the king of the Franks starting in 768 A.D., and he became the king of Italy in 774. I bet you guys didn't know you were going to get this much history, right? <laughs> I actually love history. I love history. You might be able to tell. By the year 800, he had become the first emperor in Western Europe since the collapse of the Roman Empire more than 300 years earlier. They called him the father of Europe. But let me ask you, did Charlemagne bring lasting peace? Did he really re reunite the Roman Empire, yes or no? Not a chance. He came really close. He was a very talented soldier, but it really all fell apart when he planned to pass on the empire to his two oldest sons. Both of them died before he did. So he went to plan B. He divided the empire between his youngest son and an illegitimate grandson, and neither of them was competent, and Europe went back to its old war-torn self. Charlemagne did not succeed. Why? Because God said, they shall not adhere one to another. Now, who's this next one here? Charles the Fifth, okay? Charles V. In 1519, he was elected the Holy Roman Emperor. 
The people were desperate for unity. The Protestant Reformation was underway and Germany was sharply divided. In spite of that, Charles V expanded his empire to almost 4 million square kilometers, over 1.5 million square miles. It was looking good. It looked like he might succeed in reuniting Europe. And then his health suddenly went downhill. He got horrible gout, which means he couldn't lead his troops into battle, and then he got malaria, which took his life. He failed to do it. He failed to reunite the empire. Why? Because he wasn't a great warrior? No. It's because God said, they shall not adhere one to another. And friends, when God says it, you and I don't get to change his mind. Now, how about this one? Who's this? Louis XIV, the sun king. He was so arrogant, he said, I am the head of state, or I am the state, he said. And under him, France became the strongest military power in Europe. Under Louis XIV, conditions were right to reunite the Roman Empire. But then he made a very bad decision about uniting Spain and France. And that started a war, the War of Spanish Succession. Out of desperation, Louis sent his biggest, strongest men into battle, and so many of them died that some people estimate that to this day, the average French male is still two inches shorter than he used to be. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds interesting. So why didn't he succeed, Louis XIV? Was he not smart enough? Powerful enough? Of course he was. But God said, they shall not adhere to one another. And then there was this man, the man you saw on the first screen when we began talking about European history, Napoleon. He almost did it. He almost pulled it off. He almost united the whole empire again, but he was arrogant and proud. At one moment, I don't know if you've heard this story, he was about to be crowned emperor of Europe by the pope. And as the pope was holding the wreath, Napoleon actually took the wreath out of his hands and put it on his own head. He started out trying to liberate Europe by trying to bring Europeans out from under the oppression of royal families, but it went to his head. He became a conqueror, a tyrant. In 1812, he marched into Europe with more than 600,000 men, and by the time the Russian winter had taken its toll, more than half a million were dead. From there, he goes into exile. And when he comes back, he goes to the battle of Waterloo, where he loses to General Wellington for the last time. Why did he lose, friends? His army was the same as the Duke of Wellington's. The training was the same. Everything was the same. But he was trying to accomplish something that God said never could be done. How about the 20th century? Surely there was somebody in the 20th century that could have united Europe. World War I. This is Kaiser Wilhelm, if I say it in the German way. <laughs> Kaiser Wilhelm. Did I say it right? Any German speakers here? Wilhelm. All right, thank you, thank you. At one point, the Kaiser was winning and England was losing, so the British, out of desperation, asked the Americans to help. But President Woodrow Wilson just wasn't interested. That's not our war, he said. But when Germany found out that the Brits were asking the Americans for help, they panic. 
Now, some of you may remember this interesting piece of history. They don't want America to get involved, so they hatch a plan to keep the Americans so busy they'll never come over to Europe. Does anybody know what that was? Very interesting. They send word to Mexico and they suggest an alliance. You attack America and take back all the land that used to be yours. Sorry, Texas. It was one of the things they were trying to take back. No offense. Arizona, New Mexico. And we'll give you all the support you need, Germany said. Well, somehow, the British interpret or intercept that message. It's called the Zimmerman Telegram, if any of you have ever heard of it. If any of you have ever heard of that. And they managed to decipher it. Look at this, they said. Germany is planning to invade the United States. And that settled it. President Wilson got so mad, he joined the war. And Germany was defeated. So let me ask you, how did England manage to get that telegram? Why did Germany really lose the war? Friends, I would submit to you tonight, it's because God said more than 2,000 years earlier, they shall not adhere to one another. Now, there was a young soldier in the Kaiser's army by the name of Adolf Hitler. Like most other Germans, he found the war humiliating. He swore he'd do something about it. I'll finish what Napoleon started, he said. I'll build an empire, a Reich, that will last a thousand years. And you know something? I believe he knew he was defying the will of God. There are actually stories about people who showed Hitler Daniel chapter 2. And we can't prove those, but we do know what Hitler said in 1941. This is very interesting. I hate even quoting Hitler, but look at what he says. See, my people, we do not need anything from God. We do not ask him for anything except that he may let us alone. We want to fight our own war with our own guns without God. We want to gain our victory without the help of God. I'm telling you, he knew he couldn't do it with the help of God. Neither can anybody else. And a few years later, he died in a bunker. Why? Well, a lot of people have debated that. But I would submit to you tonight, it's because God said, they shall not adhere to one another. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how many tanks and planes and bombs you have, you can't go against the Word of God. Well, you say, well, what about after World War II? What about the Soviet Union? Well, they knew that for communism to work, they would eventually have to conquer the entire world, and a huge portion of Eastern Europe fell under their control, including East Germany. At one point, they actually controlled one-third of the world's geography. But then, in 1989, it all fell apart. Some of you undoubtedly have seen pieces of the Berlin Wall in museums around the world. It didn't last, friends. Why? Because God said, they shall not adhere to one another. Well, you might say, well, Pastor Kyle, what about the European Union? I mean, isn't, aren't they united? Isn't that evidence that the Western Roman Empire can be reunited? Friends, if you look at history, the experiment has not really worked. Some nations won't join. Other nations aren't allowed to join. Some nations have all the money and others have gone bankrupt. We remember those stories of Greece and Italy and all the challenges that the European Union has had to stay together. It's not a political empire. It's an economic alliance. 
And even that's struggling. Why? Because God said, they shall not adhere to one another. Now, friends, does that mean that there will never be another world empire? That there will never be a new world order? Not quite. The Bible tells us something else. Don't forget the rest of the prophecy for Nebuchadnezzar. Remember Daniel verse, chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand. How long, friends? Forever. There is one more kingdom coming. It is a different kind of kingdom. It is not corruptible. It never needs to be replaced. And it never passes away. Why? Because this is God's kingdom. The one that will last forever. And when can we expect this to happen, friends? Jesus tells us, according to the Gospel of Matthew, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, Matthew 25, 31, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. Now think about this carefully. Everything in Daniel chapter 2, except for this, has already happened in history, right? You follow me? Everything in Daniel 2 has happened except for this. We've already had the head of gold, the chest of silver, the belly of bronze, the legs of iron, and the feet of iron and clay. All of that has happened. You and I are living in the very toenails, as it were, of the statue. And this is going to happen too. Jesus is going to come again. Is there a direction to world history? You'd better believe there is, friends. History means something, and it is going somewhere. I know sometimes it feels like life is out of control, like life doesn't make sense when we look at the suffering around us and we look at the world around us. But friends, I'm here to tell you tonight, there is something more that is coming. There is a kingdom that will last forever. What are you banking on for your future, friends? You know, everything that Nebuchadnezzar built, those beautiful walls and palaces, it's gone. Maybe in a museum somewhere. All those kingdoms are gone too. And everything that we've built here, all the stuff that we own, one day will be gone. It will be replaced by the kingdom of God. That's true for everything I build, and it's true for everything you build, friends. What are you banking on for the future? Take a look at your life and know there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more than what we see here. Something more than the heartache and suffering of COVID, of endless wars, of natural disasters. Something more than what we see. Speaking of COVID, I don't know if any of you have ever traveled and gotten sick. You don't have to raise your hand. It's pretty not fun. Have you been there? You've been in a hotel room away from home and you're sick. You don't have anybody with you. You're running a fever. You take an aspirin. It doesn't help. 
You curl up in the blankets, but it's not your blankets. You can't get warm. You can't get comfortable. You sit there shivering, sweating, aching all over, and you, but all the while, you know that you have a home somewhere else. Somewhere else. Maybe, I'm not married, but maybe you have a wife or a husband. Kids, somewhere else, you have a warm, familiar bed and people who care. And you would do anything to go back home at that moment, right? Have any of you been there? My friends, the world we live in right now is sick and shivering. The whole world is becoming a worse place by the minute. And God is saying to you and I tonight, I've got something better. I've got something better. Your heart is aching tonight because this place is not your home. Home is coming. Let me ask you, friends, are you homesick for something more? Do you sense that history is going somewhere and that this place is not your ultimate home? My friends, I will submit to you tonight Jesus Christ loves you more than you can ever know. And one day, he's coming back to take you home. My prayer is that as we go through this amazing prophecy seminar, that you will encounter Jesus. That you will encounter the truth of his word. That as we look at prophecies like Daniel 2, we will know that the Bible is true and that that kingdom, which is coming, is coming very soon. Is that your desire tonight, to be ready for that day? To put your trust in the God who knows history and the God who is coming back to take us home. As we close, I'd just like to ask you to bow your heads with me and pray. Father in heaven, tonight, we are grateful that the Bible says that you know the end from the beginning. Lord, this world is not an accident. We believe that you are there. And even in the suffering and the heartache in the midst of a a world that is shivering and sick and cold, you are steering history toward that moment when your kingdom will replace every worldly government. Lord, help us to trust you with the future. Help us to trust you with our lives. Tonight, Father, we have seen that your word is dependable. Help us to keep studying your word night after night. I pray for each one that is here. Bless them. Bless the particular needs that they have. Keep us faithful, Lord, until the day you come in the clouds of glory when your kingdom will replace all earthly kingdoms and we will be with you forever. I thank you, Father, for hearing this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.